Welcome to the Jaor Podcast, a series of conversations between writer-director Rika O'Hara, myself, composer John O'Podmore, and members of the team drawn together to create a feature film based on Lord Byron's epic poem. In this episode, we'll be discussing a vital aspect of the look of the Jaor costume. We are very lucky to be working with designer artist Janina Baikucheva, who heads the costume department at New Boyana Studio in Sofia, Bulgaria. Not only is she versed in the amazingly complex and varied look of Balkan ethnic and cultural groups, she grew up in Morocco. This is not unlike the character of David in the film, a tailor whose family came from Spain via North Africa and who represents Mediterranean civility and the coexistence of faiths and cultures in the Ottoman Empire. So Janina not only understands the look, but she connects with the themes at the very heart of the film. She has written a statement for us about her inspiration and ideas, here read for us by Agata Hrinje. Growing up in Morocco, I was mesmerized by the colors, aromas, shades and light of this magical country. That's how I build up passion for coloring and carpet weaving. With those tools and with the help of fabrics and colors, I create my characters. Cotton, wool, hemp and sackcloth are fabrics associated with hard labor and farming, the slower craft people. Same goes with earthy colors like brown, black and beige. On the other hand, bright and vivid colours like purple, blue, red, pink and yellow are typical for richer people with higher status. Silk, velvet, satin, shantung are a privilege of the same people. The Balkans are a different oasis from the rest of the world when it comes to costumes. Very similar because of the fabric, cotton and wool predominantly, and in earthy colours with spikes of white and blue. This costume has changed little through the years, but has many variations. The man usually is dressed in baggy pants, trousers or skirts, shirts, vest, saltamaki, overcoats with open sleeves, sashes, white leather belts, different types of hats, fezes, turbans and jewels, often in the form of strings with golden or silver coins. Woolen socks and survoli, Leather shoes, similar to sandals, but more closed. The women are in long, dress-like shirt, often with embroidery, woolen dresses and aprons, headscarves and hats, belts from fabric or woven with buckle, woolen socks and survoli. Sometimes they have bruhids, pleated woolen skirts, vests and jewels. The different regions would have their specific variations, Bulgarians, who, depending on the region, would be in different colours and embroidery, would generally have white shirts, baggy trousers, putties and survoli in black, brown or white, with red sashes. The women wear white, natural cotton, or white with red stripes, shirt with embroidery and lace, often void of decoration. The woolen dresses or skirts are usually black, with or without embroidery. The aprons and the belts are colourful. Serbian and the Macedonian clothes are predominantly red and white. Black dresses can be seen among women. Men are dressed with trousers and skirts, putis and survoli. On their heads, they have sheepskin hats. 
The Greeks are in white and the skirts are with many pleats hiding lots of surprises. Blue or red vests over white shirts. The women are with colourful dresses with scarves on their heads. The Arnauds are dressed in black also, with skirts decorated with black braids and ribbons. Sashes in dark colours, decorated with lots of jewels and weapons embedded in the white leather belt on top. Shirts are usually brown and the fez is white or black. The women's dresses have many layers and are as colourful as possible, also adorned with scarves and jewellery. The Turks are dressed with baggy trousers with braids, girded with sashes. The shirts are colourful with stripes and lots of buttons. The vests are in blue, green or purple. They wear turbans. The women are in long tunics, long vests and colourful silk or cotton scarves. Of course, this is a very general description. On the other hand, the West in this period is dressed in lavish costumes of Renaissance. Abundance of lace, bright colours and opulent use of fabrics are typical for the period. There are a lot of costumes, folklore, historical or military, in Boyana dating back centuries. Most of them are original from the period. The folklore costumes are all handmade, from the woven fabric to hand-stitched embroidery. The embroidery is heavy with meaning and symbols. Part of Boyana's collection are costumes from Conan the Barbarian, Hercules, Expendables and many more. The Giaur is the bacchanal of costumes. From the common people of the Balkans, through the Sultan's army, to the court and his harem, and last but not least, the Dark Arnauts is a palette of costumes that grabs your senses and brings you joy and sorrow with colours and textures. Real embodiment of inspiration. So, Rika, Janina mentions the Arnauts as a quite specific cultural group with their own look. They appear in the poem and play an important role in the film. Who actually are these people? Uh, the Arnauts are Albanians. So was Ali Pasha and his family. And uh, they were ethnic Albanians who had converted to Islam. And uh, in Byron's The Gear you can't really talk the ethnonyms and place names as they are because, you know, uh, Byron tried to confuse us as much as possible in a way. Like the title character referred to as the Venetian or later is referred to as Circassia's daughter or the loveliest bird of Frankestan, which means Georgia. And, uh, you know, there is a Tatar mentioned among Hassan's party. But uh, Byron was obviously exploiting the exoticism factor and his readers' preconceptions. Is there any way in which Byron was exploiting anti-Albanian sentiments that existed across that part of the world at the time? In the 19th century, Albanians became uh, Ottoman mercenaries. They fought for the Ottomans and uh, because they were so visible, because they were always wearing their ethnic costumes with a big skirt, Janina mentions that too, big fustanella, they were always very visible and they became a favorite subject of the Orientalist painters. And like Dora Croix painted them and Jean-Léon Jérôme painted them 
And actually, uh, uh, Delacroix's painting of the Giaur, the Giaur is wearing Albanian costume. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So he got as far as the Joe himself wearing the Albanian costume and, and being identified with the Arnauts. And Janina mentions skirts as part of men's costumes, and the Arnauts wore uh, this garment, the Fustanella, which Byron called lovely kilts. And these were worn like kilts with nothing underneath, which might be what Janina is referring to as hiding surprises in the pleats. I did an early cartoon of a Turk pointing at the fustinaras and saying, man skirt. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, pointing back at the, the Turk and saying, man dress. It's, so it's like, you know, like it's a, the, another East-West conflict that in which, you know, each side is competing, who, which side is more macho. Well, talking about macho, there's a macho aspect to the way that, that horses play such an important role. In, in, oh, in the story and in the film. And they also play an extremely important role in uh, Delacroix's painting of, of the Jaw. Yes. What is it that, what is the underlying uh, gravity of this whole theme in the film and in the poem? I think the horse is almost like an outer ego for the Gyaur, that you know, his, uh, his image is inseparable from the horse. Now, when a Gyaru first appears in the poem, he comes galloping on the blackest steed. And this, you know, image of a black horse carrying this uh, supposedly sinister character is just, you know, unforgettable. Here's an extract from the poem in which the Jawor makes his escape on horseback. Here, read by Nick Rawling. Black Hassan from the Haram flies nor bends on woman's form his eyes. The unwanted chase each hour employs, yet shares he not the hunter's joys. Not thus was Hassan wont to fly when Layla dwelt in his serai. Doth Layla there no longer dwell? That tale can only Hassan tell. Strange rumours in our city say, upon that eve she fled away when Ramazan's last sun was set and flashing from each minaret, millions of lamps proclaimed the feast of Bahram through the boundless east. Twas then she went as to the bath, which Hassan vainly searched in wrath, for she was flown her master's rage in likeness of a Georgian page, and far beyond the Muslim's power had wronged him with the faithless jowl. Somewhat of this had Hassan deemed, but still so fond, so fair she seemed. Too well he trusted to the slave, whose treachery deserved a grave. And on that eve had gone to mosque, and thence to feast in his kiosk. Such is the tale his Nubians tell, who did not watch their charge too well. But others say that on that night, by pale Fingara's trembling light, the Jao upon his jet-black steed was seen, but seen alone, to speed with bloody spur along the shore, nor maid, nor page behind him bore. Well, horses also play an important role in the narrative, in that it's the Jao's horse-riding skill is what eventually reveals him, isn't it? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's where my exploration into the characters of the Arnauds comes in. That uh, I try to understand them because, you know, there are obvious uh, uh, prejudices we're dealing with and uh, exoticism and all that. And uh, I remembered my mother, who was born in 1926, used to call me and my sister children of daughters of bazoku and bazoku sounds like in japanese sounds like horse people and uh, you know i i thought that was horse people but uh, it turned out just as i was beginning to uh, do research into all the particular items in the gyaru i realized that meant horse riding or mounted bandits and, you know, that uh, in the early Showa, early 20th century, 1920s and 1930s, there were Japanese colonists in Manchuria and northern China where there were mounted bandits. So your mother called you that um, basically when you were misbehaving. It's a, it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's, she meant we were barbarians, basically. <laughs> So, so you look at them and the horse riding bandits, you know, they were, they could be, they could be bandits or they could be guerrilla fighters, depending on which side you are on. And this is very, very close to the, uh, to the, the Arnauts in the, in the Jawa, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And then that, you know, kind of feeds into uh, uh, Byron's idea of, uh, Byron's uh, wish for Greek independence and, uh, you know, the Gyaru joining the freedom fighters to fight against the Turks is just such a perfect, you know, fit. Freedom fighters in skirts. The Gyaru in particular, freedom fighter who escapes the harem to, you know, fight for... <laughs> liberation of all. That's uh, kind That's... How Byronic can you get? You have been listening to the Gearwoo podcast by the creators of the feature film based on Lord Byron's 1813 best-selling poem. I am the writer-director Rika O'Hara and... I'm composer John O'Podnell. Rika has been joining us from Los Angeles while I'm here in London. Thank you again for listening. And look out for the next episode of the Jaw Podcast.